You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to Encyclopedia on this Sunday afternoon, uh, where New South Wales has just re-elected Gladys Berejiklian for a third, well, for her first term as, a, as being elected uh, Premier of the state. <laughs> but the uh, it's the third term for the New South Wales Liberals, even though from our perspective down here in Victoria, it looks like they've been doing um, uh, they've been doing all sorts of things. Uh, the most recent announcement was that they were going to start sending uh, or allowing police to have warrantless searches of people's homes. Um, my name is Nick in here uh, in the studio here with uh, Ash Blackwell. Ash, how you doing? Oh, good. Good to be back in the studio. I feel yes. like it's been a couple of weeks. Three since weeks I've been or something. Here. I know it has been a while. I've missed you. <laughs> it's good to, good to have you here. Um, so we've got a bit coming up on the program this afternoon because it has been a few weeks. A lot's actually happened in a few weeks, um, as it always do, does. So we'll try and touch on a bit of it. Um, but I, I mean, with the New South Wales election, there's still a lot that we don't we don't know at this point. Um, so we're not going to um, go, go deep into it because they've, uh, they're not even counting today. They've got Sunday off. So they finished the election last night, had a couple hours work, and now they're just going to leave it till till tomorrow. So so all of us um, uh, politics nerds don't get to find out anything more until later. All we know is that. The, the coalition has been re-elected. They don't have a majority of seats yet, um, and it looks like it's going to be an interesting crossbench with... Uh, I mean, we know that uh, One Nation's Mark Latham, uh, the guy that was almost the you know, Prime Minister of Australia for Labor, um, is, uh, is, is elected. We don't know about uh, LDP candidate David Lionhelm, who moved from the federal parliament uh, to state parliament. I uh, do know that uh, it looks like David Shoebridge is back in, and it looks like most of the Greens uh, in the state retained their seats. Um, Shooters and Fishers, it looks like they got some more seats. They mostly took them from the National Party. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's been a few changes. But, it, but could, it could take weeks to sort it out because they're not even counting all of the tickets yet, only the seven uh, main parties, and then they start to filter down into the more minor parties after that. Uh, thank you also to Freedom of Species, who will be back next week from 1 o'clock. If you want to find out more about Freedom of Species, 3cr.org.au, uh, and follow the links to the Freedom of Species website. And while you're there, follow the links to our webs- uh, well, our program page and um, check out our new website. Our new website has been launched. Uh, all of the podcasts from 2019 are now available on that website and on the 3CR website. Our website is in psychedelia.org. Might be a bit of a hard one to type out, so just 3CR is the easiest place to go and find it out. Um, but we're putting up uh, events, campaigns, everything that we talk about on the show, um, you'll be able to find on the website. So please do check it out in psychedelia.org. Uh, also, I want to let you know that uh, Sunday, the 31st of March, is International Day of Trans Visibility. Uh, 3CR will be joining. Transgender Victoria for a panel discussion on trans voices of colour hosted by Mama Alto and Sally Goldner, who you heard at midday if you were tuned in at midday on 3CR uh, today. That'll be live at Hares and Hyenas, 63 Johnson Street in Fitzroy from 12 till 1 o'clock and um, broadcast on Out of the Pan, which is at the same time here on 3CR. Uh, It's supported by a Victorian Government uh, Pride Events and Festivals grant. And for more information and tickets, head to the Transgender Victoria website. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR. All right, so um, news. Let's get stuck into some news campaigns, events, that kind of thing. 
All right. Well, look, I, I don't know how much we've covered it, but let's do a quick recap of some of the authoritarian laws in the New South Wales uh, government over the last several years. So in 2014, we saw the introduction of the lockout laws under the, um, I think it was under the O'Farrell government, uh, which have decimated the nightlife and essentially made it a uh, laughingstock of the world. 170 venues uh, have been closed down along with several ancillary businesses, um, there was a dilution of the right to silence under the passing of the evidence of uh, amendments bill 2013, uh, which had a new section that um, uh, removed a person's right to silence whenever they are represented by a lawyer at the police station for a serious indictable offence, which essentially has led to lawyers being kept out of interview rooms and allowing police to use a whole bunch of intimidation tactics. Uh, there was the anti-protest laws brought in under the Baird government in 2016. Uh, the Organised Crime and Public Safety Act of 2016 allows senior police to issue public safety orders without court oversight. They can ban a person from a place or of event for up to 72 hours a week. Um, silencing dissent, we have... Um, uh, what have we got? Uh, removed the uh, stuff about protesting so that um, it uh, essentially impedes the right of assembly. Uh, and then there's the war on festival stuff, which has now led to the uh, policy proposal, which we're assuming will be now introduced under a Berejiklian government. I'm never sure. Jiklian. 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 Close enough. Um, Fun to say when you get it. <laughs> uh, which essentially will allow police to conduct a warrantless search on the property of anyone who was convicted for a serious trafficking or manufacturing offence in the last 10 years. Now, that means that um, nine years, presumably after a custodial sentence, if there even was, was one, I haven't seen the details, to, to, yeah, I don't think they've been released. Um, so presumably you could you know, commit a crime, uh, be convicted of that crime, serve your time, serve any post-release period of probation that is required, re-enter community and be a uh, functioning, valuable member of society, and then police can just come and kick in your door and have a bit of a snoop around. So um, that's outrageous. <laughs> it's quite astounding that it's even been proposed. Uh, the proposal would be for a pilot program that would, uh, I think there's five regional towns or something that it would exist in. Um, now, if we've got time, I've, I've kind of gone back through the Woods Royal Commission in 1994 to pull out some of the, the key features uh, to basically highlight what can happen when police are given a free reign and when there's no civilian oversight uh, over what they do. But maybe we'll come back to that if you've got anything you want to get to, Nick. Uh, well, I mean, the, the uh, I suppose some of the big news is that while New South Wales is still going down this, this um, line of cracking down on co basically culture war, full-out culture war, um, the ACT has uh, given the green light for a second pill-testing trial at Groove in the Moo. Uh, last year it was um, fairly successful. I think there were 83 people that um, went and and it wasn't it wasn't publicised at all. Inside the event was really hard to find. You had to sort of wander around, and it was like hidden between behind some things. More people are likely to know about it this year, so there might be a, a few more people going to to check it. Um, there were some um, some uh, potentially hazardous substances w that were removed from uh, from circulation that people were then educated about as well, which is one of the key points of the um, of the pill testing uh, program. That the, the whole point is engaging people who wouldn't otherwise 
otherwise be engaged, who would otherwise be taking that drug, but wouldn't otherwise be engaged by a professional who can talk to them about that. And they may change their mind, but it's, it's sort of the point is not whether or not somebody decides to take a drug in the end. It's that they are more informed and that they know where to go uh, for better information and that they might think a little bit more about that decision than if it was sort of more of a, oh, you know, let's go, you know, that kind of attitude. We're trying to change attitudes with with these sorts of programs. So that's going to be happening. Um, There's been a few articles uh, popping up about it, um, including an article with a bunch of musos um, saying nice things about it. They all support it. And Tasmania may be getting close to a pill testing trial after a Liberal member, the Liberal member for Clark and Speaker of the House of Assembly, Sue Hickey, has split with her party and called for Tasmania to become the first of the states to allow a uh, a pill testing trial. Um, You know, sort of stating the things that we love politicians to say, uh, saying that it's really a health issue, not just a policing issue. so she said that her decision to support a pill testing trial was reached after seeing the stances taken by the Australian Medical Association, the Royal College of General Practitioners and former Australian Federal Police Commissioner uh, Mick Palmer. Um, essentially saying, yeah, we need to listen to the professionals. Like clearly, you know, there's some smart people that are uh, doing good work here and, and we should listen to what they say. So, um, you know, hopefully... Hopefully, Tassie down there could uh, sort of scream ahead in the in the pill testing uh, um, discussion. I've got a couple of events coming up, but there is actually something maybe we should get to beforehand, which is a little story you pulled some audio from. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Thanks for the heads up there, Nick. Let me just <laughs> <I> like to <laughs> let me just keep dig that up. Are we playing uh, it from here? No, no. Oh, I've got it from oh you're going to play it. Yeah. Great. Go. Do it. All right. Well, I mean, here's the audio then. In the rush of life in Melbourne as a city wakes and commuters head to work, drive through the back streets of North Richmond and the deadly scourge of heroin hasn't gone away. Sitting in the dirt, a young woman injects beside a garbage bin. Crouched between cars, a homeless couple use their supply on the street. Doctors fear Victoria's deadliest heroin epidemic in 20 years could be far worse than first thought. My estimate is that it's many times more than a than we are capable of treating in a single room at the moment. After two near-fatal overdoses, Tanya Williams is now one of 2,300 registered clients using the medically supervised injecting room. I use the injection room about four or five times a day. The grandmother turned to heroin after the death of her daughter six years ago and hasn't been able to stop. I lost my daughter. Um, It's very hard for me. I felt like I couldn't grieve. And I had to kill the pain and my family showed me heroin and it's like it's allowed me to stop my pain. Tanya is homeless and clinic statistics show around one in two clients are sleeping rough in Richmond or the CBD. One in four have recently been released from prison, many in the past three months, and a significant proportion are battling mental health issues. This is exactly the group of people that we want to use the room because they're very high risk of overdose. And that was a report by Carrie Ann Greenback for Channel 9. And I think it kind of highlights there was a few weeks ago the statistics came out uh, I think from six months of operation for the injecting room and um, you know it was sort of there was some mixed stuff in there it highlighted that while the room was operational it was incredibly effective they're essentially at capacity there's so many people coming in to use the facilities um, 
uh, and a lot of overdoses have been prevented within the center. And a lot of people have been referred to treatment as well. Um, and during the operational hours, uh, call outs from ambulance, etc., have dropped uh, significantly. But outside the operation hours of the injecting room, there are still sirens um, in the local community where people are, you know, experiencing overdoses out on the street. And, um, you know, there's maybe still some barriers to, to some people accessing the, the, the room. And also concerns from some of the local uh, residents about the, the, I guess, the so-called honeypot effect. Um, there's a perception among many of them that there is an increase in uh, street-based drug dealing. Well, I mean, it, for is those, it, is it many? Because this is the question I have. I don't think well, it is many. I think it's a very, it's, very small handful of people who are very, very good at being loud about um, it, it, about this perspective. It could well be, but it's a. I've been down a, there a lot. Sure, and it's you. um, it's it's like. It may not be an unreasonable concern. I mean, it's why people like us were calling for a heroin prescription program um, that would resolve the issue of street-based dealing mm. for people that are, you know, long-term chronic injecting drug users that have had addiction problems for a long time. Um, that The hustle of kind of sourcing, you know, the substance actually impedes their ability to, to yeah. do the other things in their life that might make them... Um, you know, feel better if they, if they need housing or things like this to actually um, kind of have a higher quality of life for themselves. The the hustle can really impede that. What they found in That's Switzerland right. with the heroin prescription program was that it kind of stabilised people's lives, like to be able to have access to, I guess, government-supplied um, regular dose of, of heroin. These are people that have, you know, to, to qualify for that program in Switzerland, they had to have tried the methadone program and other addiction treatment modalities and they just didn't work for them. Um, but they found that most of the people, when they could actually just get the heroin injected in a stable routine way, it allowed them the space to manage those other things in their life. And that, I mean, that's probably going to be a step further for most most people now, but really that is the problem that prohibition causes. The, the, the problem isn't the drug itself. It's it's all the, this huge black market that goes on. It's the, it's the culture that it creates because you've got this kind of cat and mouse game constantly going on between the authorities and the people who are using drugs. And, and this idea that, um, you know, this I mean, this person, the drug user is both victim and perpetrator of the crime in the one person it's it doesn't make any sense it's what are we doing i think the other thing to add about the injecting room is that it's now only just six months into a um two-year trial and they haven't even built the standalone facility yet it's so this has just there. been their um yeah the, yeah, yeah the i think next it's one, few, few months i think it's still yep. two or three months away but it's it's got walls on it last time i looked yeah so, so this has been plaster on the this walls, has been <laughs> essentially a um you know a room built onto the side of the north uh, north richmond community health center um and it's done a fantastic job so far but the standalone facility hasn't even been built yet so you know we'll see what happens as um you know over the next 2 years to to see what the outcome actually is of that that trial uh, and uh, speaking of people who are out there talking about drug policy, one of those organisations is Drug Policy Australia, who have been out um, lately. You might have seen them if you've been around the city. They've been out in Burke Street Mall. Uh, that's with Greg Chip, also Matt Riley from Free Cannabis Victoria, um, who are holding uh, next month's uh, 420 rally on April 20th. And we haven't um, heard as much from them lately. They had, uh, I mean, they're pretty pretty consistent over, over the um, summer 
haven't had as many um, of the 420 picnics over this summer. I don't think there's been other things on people's plate. But uh, April 20th, of course, which is Easter Saturday this year, um, the rally will be held from 2pm in uh, down in... Um, not Treasury Gardens. What's the other one? Flagstaff. Flagstaff Gardens, thank yeah. you. Uh, which I think half of it is dug up for the Metro project at the moment as well. But they'll still be there... Um, and it is a, it's a, it's sort of a, it's not a protest. It's not a, it's, it's really pushed as a, a peaceful, um, just picnic gathering. It's just a gathering of that community, um, which is a, a large community and only a very tiny portion of it turn up at Flagstaff. If you look at all of the Victorian community, like how many people in, uh, in Victoria use cannabis, uh, it's, it's a large number. Um, and uh, also while we're on that, I haven't actually read Fiona's bill yet, but, um, Fiona's the the a, cannabis bill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She um, put forward a notice of motion to refer to committee uh, a, a, the discussion about um, cannabis regulation. So okay. that Parliament's not sitting in April. Um, <clears throat> so I guess we've got plenty of time to go through the details and um, understand that better in in the lead up to when Parliament resumes at the start of May. We'll definitely get Fiona on to, to catch up a little bit about that. And uh, also, in um, in the, at the start of May, I'll be heading up to Nimbin for the Mardi Gras Festival, uh, where hopefully, if, if we can figure out the technology of this, hopefully we'll be broadcasting in Psychedelia live from Nimbin. <laughs> That's... That's if I, if I can plug all of the things in um, and get it working. But we'll be doing a panel on uh, the uh, drug driving laws, in particular the drug driving laws and how they uh, do not focus on impairment. They are not about road safety primarily. Uh, they are primarily about finding people who use drugs. And that does not necessarily correlate with somebody who is currently impaired on drugs. Uh, I don't think anybody has a problem. In fact, I think everybody is supportive of the idea because, I mean, as that sticker that you see on a lot of bumper bars says, everybody's touched by the road toll. Uh, we all know somebody, we've all got a story of somebody that we know that's had a hugely debilitating uh, injury or has died from um, from a car accident or something that's happened on the roads. And there are plenty of those that are caused by people who are impaired and should not be on the roads. And those people should not be on the roads. But... We shouldn't be using these programs to remove people, for, for, to, to collect people's bodily fluids to then say, ah, you're guilty of an offence which has nothing to do with impairment because that, that offence uh, has nothing to do with impairment. So you, spe yeah. speaking of friend of the show, Fiona Patton, there was a bill that went through Parliament this week, a transport legislation amendment bill, um, and Fiona introduced an amendment into that, um, which I think was carried, that uh, basically... Uh, said that medical cannabis should be considered in line with other prescription drugs and so people accessing the medical cannabis scheme should be, uh, I guess, exempt from the, the way that the drug driving laws are currently Absolutely. operational. I mean, it's, um, they don't have an exemption at the moment and that's absurd because that means... People can get out there, and I mean, this is the thing, people who are prescribed things like uh, the, the benzos, the very Valium, Xanax, all of these things, um, which can be quite debilitating as well, uh, that's not that's not tested for, and unless a police officer can identify um, and tell that you are impaired to drive, which isn't always easy for a police officer to do, then those people that might be impaired will remain on the roads. While somebody that smoked cannabis a few days ago 
could be removed from the roads for three months, six months, and receive um, a fine. Um, I think even the highest possible sentence is a, a year in jail. It's not going to happen very often, but it's possible. Yeah, I think that there's a common misconception in the community that that's what the drug driving laws do. They don't actually charge people with driving while impaired. The, the charge that actually gets uh, leveled for them is... Um, driving with an illicit drug in your system, yeah, I think. Detectable. And I've seen, you know, like a lot of junior police officers, um, they just let the, you know, let the kind of myth or, or perception of that it is actually an impairment charge um, carry in. The media talks about it that way, but I have seen some senior police officers that understand the difference very clearly state that, um, you know, we've detected this many people driving hmm. with an illicit drug lie. in their system. Because that's, that's lying. <laughs> well, detecting somebody with an illicit drug in their system is what they've okay. actually done. That's accurate. But um, often not- they just... The whole conversation just lets it lets it kind of run with this assumption that those people are actually impaired. And some of them hmm. may be, but that's not what they're charged with. Um, that's, not, that's not what's been proven. Um, I think there's only a couple of people each year that actually get charged with driving while impaired from an illicit yeah, drug. So t- because that has to be identified, again, by the police officer. They have to be able to tell that you're uh, intoxicated. Yeah, and I and think that's... it requires a, a certain level of additional training as well. It probably would, yeah. Um, so we're going to be talking about this topic in depth um, with people like Fiona Patton, uh, David Shoebridge from the New South Wales Greens, uh, Michael Balderstone, I believe, from the Hemp Embassy, uh, who will be fighting his own charge. Funny that. I guess what, the police surround Nimbin <laughs> when, mm. when that uh, festival's on. And that will be... Uh, Sunday, or actually it might be on the Saturday. It'll be on the weekend of uh, Friday the 3rd till Sunday the 5th of May, which is when Nimbin Mardi Gras is on. You can find out more by looking up Nimbin Mardi Gras by heading to our website, psychedelia.org, or uh, heading to the Hemp Embassy website. Um, also, just wanted to quickly mention that the following weekend is the EGA Garden States uh, event, which we will also be broadcasting live from down in Springvale Town Hall. I know we're keeping busy. Um... Again, more details on the website, but uh, the topic of conversation there will be how our drug laws have um, wrapped up uh, lots of plants, including fungi, including uh, yeah other other kinds of plants, uh, into them, and and what this has sort of meant, how this what this element of the the drug mm. war has meant. Um, I've got a couple of other events, but. Um, uh, well, yeah, I, I think so. I just, I just want to sort of note. We'll have to come back to it next week because we're definitely not going to have time in this show. But uh, uh, Penny Hill and Nick Kent from SSDP Australia are over in Europe right now. Um, they've just been attending the Commission on Narcotic Drugs in, uh, I think it's in Vienna, and um, UNGAS, the United Nations General Assembly Special Session on Drugs, uh, will be coming up. Uh, surely is it this week or I'm, soon, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm lost on all the timing of these things but the big international drug discussions are essentially happening in uh, in Europe right now and we will be reporting back probably next week um, on some of the happenings there hopefully we'll get Penny uh, and or Nick on the show to talk about what's happening there um, it's been quite interesting there's a lot of tension in the international drug policy space between countries that are embracing a harm reduction stance or even countries like Canada and Uruguay that are legalizing cannabis and countries that are maintaining the more prohibition uh, kind of framework like China and Russia. And a lot of these discussions are consensus discussions. So that creates a real kind of 
bureaucratic diplomatic tension that happens there. But one thing that has changed is civil society groups have uh, essentially got themselves a bigger seat at the table. So there's more civil society groups with a louder voice in those discussions. So we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out and what the outcomes are, but it's interesting times in international drug policy. Uh, Now, um, this isn't Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. We do have a new website for any more information on the sorts of things that you've heard now. Head to our website, npsychedelia.org. Uh, if that's hard to spell, 3CR website has a link on it or our social media. If you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, you'll be able to find our website uh, there and also all the uh, podcasts. Um, this uh, Wednesday at uh, at Revolver Upstairs, 229 Chapel Street from 6.30pm is the party, that's P-A-R-T-I, Drug Awareness Training uh, session. And they're going to be um, talking about uh, a few things there. And they actually caught up with... Uh, with the 3CR breakfast program on Thursday and had a bit of a chat with them there. So I'm just going to play you a bit of a segment. 3CR breakfast is on uh, from 7am till 8.30am on weekday mornings. Make sure to set your alarm for that one. And now we're really lucky to be joined in the studio by Kate, Dan and Gaia from The Party Project. So Dan, I might just throw over to you. Can you give us a bit of a background on The Party Project and where it's come from? Yeah, so um, it's a collaborative uh, project between Star Health and Thorn Harbour Health. Um, the funding came out as a response to uh, dealing with overdose within communities, um, specifically relating to three fatal overdoses um, that happened two years ago now. Um, and I guess uh, the funding came out in order to, you know, how, what would a community response look like um, in regards to these people who've taken um, dodgy substances. Pill testing is not a um, thing that exists in an accessible way right now, so how else can we respond um, within the community? So it, it began by training venues and late-night staff, um, late-night venue staff, how to respond to overdose, because um, that, that's definitely something that came out of, of that event that um, people felt kind of um, not prepared or they didn't have capacity to respond in that way. Um, and we've since expanded to doing uh, what's called peer training, which um, so aims to empower people who use party drugs uh, in a way that um, they feel they can reduce harm um, with their use. Yeah. And on Thursday breakfast, we've been we've actually been having quite a few chats with people around pill testing and harm reduction more broadly. Guy, if I could just ask you to sort of speak a bit about the importance of harm reduction. Um, I think harm reduction is so important because it's really like a realistic approach. You know, we all know that drugs are a part of society and, you know, there's a whole spectrum from people who use drugs in, I guess, what you call a recreational setting, but also people that have more long-term um, substance dependency issues. And I think, um, you know, we really have to be realistic and um, acknowledge the fact that this does happen and, and find ways that we can make, I guess, a whole range of spaces safer so that people are less likely to um, to experience harms from these drugs. So I guess, you know, in our harm reduction approach is looking at um, harm reduction in a nightclub and how we can make nightclubs and late night venues safer spaces for people who do choose to use these sorts of substances um, and, yeah, not necessarily trying to discourage drug use but actually just meeting them where they're at and giving them um you know a little bit of uh, acknowledging that they have you know autonomy and that they are able to make their own choices and just empowering that them to do that more safely 
Yeah, amazing. And so what does what does the party project or session actually look like? Okay, if you can make – because, you know, I found out about you through a friend's Instagram, actually. Like, I don't have Instagram myself. Um, but if a mate was like, hey, this looks really cool, you might want to chat with these guys. Um, and it's a really incredible platform for peer education. Can you speak a bit about what was the um, decision to sort of use Instagram and other social media as your main – uh, platform for education and what folks can expect. Yeah, well, Seshed, I guess, has become our peer arm of the project. So um, the way that we can talk to our peers and, and people who young, who use drugs, particularly when they party. Um, and we really wanted a way where we could were able to reach more people. Um, and so we, we've been using Facebook um, for a while now to communicate, but we decided to get on Instagram and really just change the language we used and made it really, I guess, accessible and clear that, you know, that we are peers talking to, you know, our, our other peers. Um, and what's so great about Instagram is, I guess, it's very visual as well. And so we were able to communicate um you know, not only through the language we use, but also visually um, that that it, this is really youth focused and we are not, you know, people talking down at you, telling you don't do drugs because, you know, they're bad, but you know, that, um, you know, we're the same as you and we just want to, you know, um, share this information with you um, that is is actually really hard to access, to access so much of this information of, of just how to take um, how to be more safe, um, how to reduce harm, how to, you know, look after yourself. And because pe- people do, they want to know this stuff, they want to stay safe, but they also, you know, lots of people also choose to take drugs too. And so if you give people this information that um, in a way that they believe and they can trust you that you're actually, um, you know, that the information is true and you're not just lying to them, um, then then people will will do take it on board. And so, you know, just being able to share tips, you know, um, straight into people's pockets because we know people are using Instagram. We know people are, you know, checking stories. So um, the long weekend has just been and we, there were three major festivals on. So we were able to just share tips on on way people can, could prepare for these festivals, um, things to keep in mind at the festival, how to make a drug plan, what drugs, you know, are dangerous um you know, when taken together um, and just, you know, get that get that information to people as they're, you know, on the way in their car with their friends, hopefully even talking to their friends about it, talking to each other about, you know, what their drug plans are um, and, you know, able to in- continue on that peer-to-peer drug education. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, on Thursday breakfast we often we talk about abolition a lot, prison abolition. Um, and so I did actually just want to ask around, you know, we know that criminalisation doesn't make folks safer, you know. And so I think one thing that seems really also awesome about this project is that it is recognising that actually education and community support is a way to reduce harm, not, you know, criminalising people and saying, don't do this, this is bad, you know, lock people up who use drugs. But actually that, you know, if people are empowered to have more access to knowledge around, you know, ways of being safer when using drugs, that that actually leads to really, you know, tangible and amazing outcomes in terms of when people are out partying on the weekend. So a little side rant. But what I did want to ask, 
I think we've got time for a few more questions. Um, around the sort of the disproportionate impacts on LGBTIQ people and communities. A couple of weeks back, we spoke with Thorn Harbour Health around the proposed ban on AML or poppers. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> I was wondering if one of you um, would like to talk about, I guess, your work, particularly in relation to LGBTIQ communities and experiences. Well, I guess... Historically, the LGBTIQ community has been really good at peer education, um, but and so I guess social media is uh, you know a further extension of that. But at the same time, um, you know this community, um, you know that drug use is a lot higher in this community for for a number of reasons, um, and the um, while we do have a really great history of of um, sharing knowledge through peer education. There are also a lot of people in our community who who are very isolated, and so um, you know to be able to it's it's really important to work out ways um, that we can share this information that that is, goes beyond just sharing the information person to person. You know, in person IRL, and to, to be able to utilize the internet um, to to get this information you know, into people's you know homes into their bedrooms. Um, I think is really important. Yeah. And because I think we probably have to wrap up. So I was wondering, Guy or Dan, could you tell us about the free training that you're running next week and how people can find out more? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of kind of launching our SeshEd Instagram, which is sesh.ed, um, we're doing a peer-to-peer training at Revolver Nightclub on the 27th, Wednesday the 27th of March at 6.30pm. So um, you can register by through our Eventbrite link. You can go on our Party Project Facebook page or the SeshEd um, Instagram and we'll talk about um, safer partying and um, yeah, it'll be a really great night. So hopefully see some of you there. And that was um, the Thursday 3CR breakfast team. Um, the voice of, uh, I've actually got the names in front of me, but they're uh, they're on from 7am till 8.30am on 3CR. And every day of the week, you can hear 3CR breakfast that covers a whole range of issues. Basically, all the issues that you hear focused on in shows like ours, where we focus on drug policy, freedom of species, on animal rights issues, um, queering the air, focusing on uh, queer issues. All of these things you hear little snippets of in the breakfast programs between 7 and 8.30am on 3CR, so please uh, tune in. And that you were hearing um, uh, voices of Gaia and Kate uh, from the Party Project, and I think Dave was there as well, um, who are having their SESH Ed Party Drug Awareness Training, 6.30pm at Revolver Upstairs, 229 Chapel Street, this Wednesday evening. Uh, now, on um, this on this afternoon, actually, this is what we're doing next, um, is the uh, Cy- Cyberdelics Incubator event. Now the uh, the Cyberdelics Incubator. We actually, I'll, I'll go into it in a tick. Um, I'm going to play some music for you first. The music is um, music from a video clip that one of the uh, performers who will be at tonight's event um, performed. So we'll just get straight into that. Orientation. 3CR. Emotions. In psychedelia. Textures. Simulation. Orientation. Are you listening? Emotions. Simulation, orientation, emotions, textures. Simulation, orientation, emotions, textures. Simulation, orientation, emotions, textures. 
Scissors and Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR digital, 3cr.org.au. And this afternoon there is an event going on in Brunswick that you may be interested in if you are able to get out to it, the Cyberdelics Incubator, um, which is a, from what I can figure, and I'm still having conversations about this, we're going to have an interview in the future with the, with the guy that's brought this to Melbourne, um, but the Cyberdelics Incubator is sort of a, uh, an international movement, I guess, of linking up the psychedelic movement with the sort of virtual reality and um, augmented reality stuff that's going on with, uh, with the digital space and with the use of um, ever more powerful computers and ever more um, powerful and integrative ways to manipulate this, you know, the, the sensory input. I suppose. Uh, so there's some really interesting stuff going on. If this sounds interesting to you, it's happening from 5pm at 3 Merrifield Street in Brunswick. Uh, you can find it by heading to our website npsychedelia.org uh, or find us on social media. There's info info about it there and it's also um, being co-hosted by the Australian Psychedelic Society and Voice Club, which is a uh, podcast from Tim Adelin uh, that you also might be interested in. He talks to a number of people, uh, especially in the psychedelic space, about sort of psychedelics and philosophy and other ideas like that but right now on the line um, we've got one of the uh, one of um, the the uh, uh, performers I suppose you would say uh, who will be there tonight setting up some virtual reality gear we've spoken to him in the past um, because uh, Roger in the past you were um, at an Acme exhibition talking about I believe it was DMT and Alice in Wonderland uh, Roger Isig welcome to the program Howdy, how are you, Nick? Yeah, good. It was was it DMT and Alice in Wonderland or just psychedelics? I can't remember. It was uh, just, uh, I forget the exact name, but it was all, all about oh yeah, the interpretations of Alice in Wonderland. So getting a, a variety of people in to talk about their interpret interpretations, including a mathematician, a neurophysicist, uh, a neurobiologist. Um, a journalist and then a psychedelic person, me. Yeah. <laughs> a psychedelic person that works in a factory. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> in a factory, well, you work in a factory by day, but by night you're tinkering with uh, all sorts of things uh, on, on the edge yeah. of these boundaries. So uh, talk to us a little bit about what you'll be taking along to this event at 5 o'clock tonight in Brunswick. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, all I know about the event really is that it's uh, psychedelic based, so which is kind of uh, appropriate for my work. Um, in 1998, I had a DMT experience that I've been trying to replicate ever since in a variety of media. And once uh, virtual reality started becoming uh, a popular thing or you know, a viable thing, um, I've put my attention towards that. So I've made a, a, a 1.5-minute experience where people just go in. So it's sort of like pretty much real time, as in that's what the, the, the peak of the DMT experience for me was around that time. It was only um, two inhalations, so it wasn't a full, full blown. Well, actually, for me it was, but I, I've heard you can go much deeper. Um, but for me, it was hyper psychedelic, hyper kaleidoscopic, um, very, um, it was actually quite menacing and uh, reptilian, and so I'm trying to replicate that feeling. Um, and I've used the Google's AI deep dream software and my own artwork and yeah, it's taken and I, I use stuff that I had on my computer that was ten years old animation that I made and incorporated that and so yeah, people can go into this VR device and look at three hundred and sixty degrees and see this hyper animated uh, experience that I've created. 
But I'm also uh, bringing uh, a sculpture that I made that I've just got into chainsaw sculpting. Um, and it's, yeah, it's kind of an odd-looking object. Um, yeah, using a chainsaw and power tools and blow tools and very hands-on tactile things. But then we can actually walk up and touch it and rotate it on this platform. Um, stands about 40 centimetres high. And I've used a technique called photogrammetry where I've uh, brought it into VR. So it's a, basically a, a one-to-one replication. But I've scaled it up in VR so people can actually look up at it. It's about 10 metres high once it's in this virtual reality. This, this sounds all very cool. <laughs> We're sitting here, like, looking at... I suppose the question... Like, uh, actually, Nash, did you have a, a question? Well, I was, I, was, I was kind of curious, um, you know, obviously we're going to talk about what you're presenting tonight, but what, what are the other art uh, creations that you've done over the years? Like, 1998 was a long time ago. Maybe there was less digital stuff then. What, what kind of art have you produced to try and, um, I guess, explain that DMT experience in the past? Yeah, exactly. So my first attempt was, um, oh, I've got drawings of just, you know, textures and stuff like that. And that was very rudimentary, very basic. And it was just, I think it was just me trying to cope with what I just experienced. I did it, you know, a couple of days later, just trying to work out what it was. It was so profound for me to realise that, you know, the human mind in, you know, in combination with a chemical can do such a thing or a molecule can do such a thing. So, yeah, it was just basic stuff. And then um, then I just went into Photoshop, a couple, like, I think a year or two later, and just went, I have to try to recreate it. And with a blank canvas in Photoshop, just a black canvas, I started making patterns and applying filters and ended up with a an image that looks, looks like a, an alien sort of creature, reptilian, EU bird, uh, dragon thing. <laughs> Um, and that became kind of a viral thing online. Um, and it's been used in um, uh, academic work on Scientific American used it for one of their articles. And um, yeah, it sort of went around. It's got thousands of downloads and stuff like that. So, because so, it, it was one of the earlier DMT representations online that you could actually look up, that was called DMT Entity. So. I suppose you're um, you're you're doing these things. You're bringing this um this experience that you had and trying to show it to other people. But what for? I guess like what? Why do you want people to understand this? What did it mean to you at the time? And what are you hoping that people will, will get out of out of understanding this? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's, it's more for me. It was so profound that I want want to know if anyone else has seen something similar to see if there's a pattern emerging amongst people with, you know, that see similar things or to work out, you know, what is it about our psyche that develops or gives access to these things. Um, and it's been amazing, like, sharing that, that first initial uh, Photoshop artwork, um, the feedback. Um, I've collated them and collected them over the years and people have been, like, scared to look at it because it reminds them of what they saw or, you know, like, uh, a guy was tripping mm-hmm. and he his friend showed him on his computer and the guy wouldn't want to... He left the room. <laughs> um, uh, I've had uh, people say, yep, I've been exactly the same thing. Um, get on. But that's kind of the feedback that I was looking for, I think, initially when doing it. Just feedback, going, has anyone seen this? <laughs> so yeah. I think that's been my, my biggest drive. Yeah, 
I guess there is a lot of what is this? What is going on here when uh, when people come back from these experiences uh, with, especially with uh, compounds like DMT, uh, but also psilocybin, also LSD and uh, uh, mescaline uh, to, to other extents for other substances. They've all got this sort of um, this this narrative that they've got a story within them that starts to unfold, and and there does seem to be, you know, I mean, you you've put it out there and you've seen that people are familiar with that, so it's not just you. And I've looked at you know art pieces that you've done and i've gone yeah yeah i know i know what you're talking about and i think a lot of people do i think we do have this um throughout our society a little bit more i, I see it in uh po- all throughout pop culture now i see little little motifs yeah. and, and you go oh yeah i know what you, you you but um yeah I, I suppose it's it's really interesting now because there are these um really immersive tools like virtual reality and augmented reality um and and it starts to bring in because of the power of these tools, starts to bring in questions over, um, like, what are we doing with these technologies and how do we ensure that we're going to use them for not just not just the understanding that yeah i've seen that and you've seen that but to to better things to make things better for all of us like how do we how do we then take it that step forward i, I don't know if this is something that you want to delve into but true uh, it's a you could say it's an empathy machine so I mean, it's been used, you know, like uh, re- recreating using cameras and stuff, a uh, 360 3D environment uh, where you can place people in a Syrian, a Syrian refugee camp. That's been an example um, where people have gone. And so it gives people a much more one-to-one experience of what it's like to be there. Instead of seeing it on a, a screen in front of them, it's, they're surrounded by a, a Syrian refugee camp, for example. So that's one way it's like a... Uh, or, you know, showing people disaster areas, stuff like that. Um, so that could help with donations, <laughs> you know, if there's a if they are, um Yeah, it's another way to sort of assure um, this technology, just like a phone or, you know, like Facebook. Um, I, I see it as a net benefit, positive to humanity, for sure. You know, the ability to share experiences and, you know, just games and stuff as well, which is really fun, but... Uh, there's storytelling and, you know, conveying um, more uh, real human experiences that you don't get from a, not necessarily from a, you know, a flat screen in front of you. There was something. Um, <clears throat> my my first introduction to the the psychedelic space, I guess, was at um, Beyond Psychedelics in Prague last year. They had several people there using different kinds of technology, including virtual reality technology. And one of my biggest takeaways from um, from that conference was that the psychedelic community seems almost unique in its ability to draw together the traditional, the shamanic, the ceremonial, and the abstract futuristic. Um, it was, you know, and, and conversations about like actually using technology to bring them together to, to take shamans, you know, using DMT and um, brain map their experience so that we can try and then understand uh-huh. it better and recreate it through virtual reality. Is um, is, is, um, is that kind of traditional or sh- shamanic spiritual side of things something that you kind of uh, include or bring into your work? Not, not at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it's like, for me, um, even meditating or any, any psychedelic I'm doing, it's the only spiritual component about it. Even it's, it's basically from my lucid dreaming training, the ability to um, 
just remain conscious within the dream. Uh, I, I, I've wanted to uh, apply that to my spirituality, basically. So it's very, like, if I meditate with my eyes closed, I'm only interested in the patterns or the actual visual. Like, I'm not interested in connecting to the universe. Or I'm only interested in, 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 in the visuals. I think that's just because I'm an artist, so well, I'm a very visual person. So, yeah, if I, if I wanted to apply any sort of uh, spirituality, it was, it's only based on vision information. Perhaps I'll I'll take a slightly different tact because um one of the um one of the things that's intrigued me about all of this is that it's I mean it's very easy a lot there's, there is this whole section of the psychedelic community that's very much about looking for authenticity and I find it a really bizarre. Uh, path, a really bizarre search that they're on, a really bizarre quest. I don't quite understand what that means, what that means that they're trying to search for authenticity when it's literally right in front of you at all times. It's right here. We're being, you know, it's an it's authentic. Reality is the authentic thing right in front of people. But I feel like people are, are so, there's such a, a muddle of um, of sort of politics and ideology that, that gets wrapped up inside people's heads where they're, they're worried about who they're being, where they've come from, they don't quite know they feel out of place they feel like they have to apologize for who they are and 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 this it seems like it's it's to me that feels like a blockage that um that we're always going to get caught up in these sort of circular arguments that go round and round and round to find the the global politics right now until we can just go ah it's right here like we never left eden we've always been here you know so that's i don't know that's sort of that that's the because yeah in the end it you don't. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure there are very interesting things, and I'm very interested in um, in, in the stories that come from uh, all the other cultures around the world. And, and I'm not um, trying to down downplay them. It's just not. It's not their their story is not the story. It's a story. It's a story amongst many stories. And um, yeah, I think we can see that. I guess, and that's sort of part of part of the point of these technologies that, um, and and with the with that psychedelic experience that we see that that experience is within us all is that really it's not something outside. We don't need to go searching for the right guru or the right spirit quest to go on or the right you know psychedelic to take or religion to believe in or wh- whatever it is because it's it's in you all the time. It's just a really hard thing to you know. We, I can I can say that, but I got heaps of you know I'm like overweight, drink too much. Like I got plenty of silly things that I do so like I can say this but it's very hard to then like but with technologies like this maybe that's one of those things that can help people break through and go and remind people and go ah I don't have to you know it is right there and I suppose that's the therapeutic potential you sort of touched on before that there is that um that therapeutic potential of this these technologies have you seen um these sorts of things used in a therapeutic sense and is that something you want to touch on definitely and yeah there's apps created specifically I, I love the one um, it's more of a well it's sort of a good indication of it uh, there's some burns victims they are uh, you know just, if they're in hospital and they're getting uh, their treatment it's very painful and they're in there for you know for weeks or months or you know um, and virtual reality has been used while while they're getting their treatment done so they're in a VR headset and they're shown cool environments like snow-capped mountains, uh, snowmen or women. <laughs> um, yeah, just to take their mind away. And, and it, it can actually trick the mind enough so they can be given less pain medication while they're on it. 
they've actually lowered the doses of pain medication while they're in these cool environment experiences. So, and yeah, it can distract the mind from, from pain. So that's one example. Or there's some meditation apps. There's one that's being shown at the event tonight called Down Self, which is made by Robin, I forget his last name, uh, in 2013, I think. And he showed it at um, Burning Man. He was one of the first to show VR in a public setting, or well, modern VR. So, um, and you chant, you, you do sustained tones into the microphone, and there's a feedback loop of visual and audio. And it's incredible. It's, it's hyper-psychedelic, um, and that's, everyone comes out of that feeling a bit, because, you know, if you just chant, it would just create a sustained tone without VR, it feels good after a while, you know. Um, but this is an amplifier in that experience. So that's something I'd love to in- include one day, some sort of feedback loop experience where you can actually, your input gets fed back to you and it can enhance the experience. So, uh, yeah, I'd recommend everyone... Um, Try sound if they get a chance for sure. The um, I feel like the future is quite abstract. We spend a lot of our time in digital spaces now. We have these little supercomputers in our hands that we walk around with, um, and it's quite an abstract space that I think humanity is still figuring out. And virtual reality and these new technologies are going to make it even more so. Do you think that that psychedelics help to understand that kind of abstraction for people creating or experiencing uh, things inside these virtual realities? It definitely can help, for sure. Um, I'm not sure. I can only talk about my own uh, work in in that regard. Uh, You know, like, um, I'm not not a programmer or something like that, but I had this quest to, you know, like, to recreate the DMT experience as best as I could. And I... I've still got a path to do. I still got. I know what I want to do, but the technology isn't there yet. I'm kind of waiting for mobile uh, VR to be powerful enough, which it should be able to do. Um, but still, um, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like um, like if people have a vision or insight on on psychedelics, um, they've been yeah utilizing digital technologies for years trying to. Uh, incorporate, like, you know, like, look at the incredible films um, where people have spent, you know, millions of dollars trying to recreate the ayahuasca experience, for example, on the movie Renegade, that would have cost heaps um, to create that amazing animation. Um, That's, you know, that's an example of um, psychedelic users making an animation, because if you look into the the making of that film, uh, the director, he he had 30 ayahuasca sessions, for example, and he he was he directed that scene, this amazing scene. So he, I don't think he could have attempted it just on other people's input, other people's experience. He had to do it himself, for example. Yeah. And um, can you tell us anything about the other uh, presenters, artists that are going to be there tonight? Oh yeah, I actually don't know. I, yeah. I, uh, I'm just going off the, uh, the Facebook invite page, really, of, of what's going on. I don't know anyone there, really, or much about it. So just a, a friend who knows people um, 
he messaged me, so I went, oh, that sounds great. So, it looks like it's yeah, a – I've had a bit of a look through the list. I'm not familiar with everybody that's on there, but I've had a bit of a chat with some of the people that are involved, and it's a, it's quite a collection of uh, people ranging from um, just sort of visual artists to virtual virtual reality artists to people that are really sort of um, technology hackers. It's, it's going to be quite an interesting collection. And, um, yeah, uh, Roger, thank you very much for um, talking to us uh, on the program this great, afternoon and, and, and have fun tonight. Oh well, yeah. It sounds like it's going to be a great night. Thank you very much. And um, that is uh, Roger Esig. He is the uh, he is a virtual reality uh, artist. Well, you know, he's a, look. He's a psychedelic artist. He uses many forms of media uh, to express what he expresses. And he's one of many who are going to be presenting at the Cyberdelics Incubator. Uh, at 3 Merrifield Street in Brunswick tonight from 5pm. More information on our website in psychedelia.org or follow the links to the social media. Um, and tickets uh, on sale, you can buy them online or you can buy them at the door. Um, and uh, look, I, I mean, it's going to be an interesting event. It, you can go, you can um, experience these psychedelic effects without the drugs because don't forget that psychedelics is still illegal. This con- uh, conversation has been contraband. And uh, this is in Psychedelia on 3CR. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.